0: The Buddha singled out right speech as part of the Eightfold Path, which is the basic formulation of the teachings, the path of practice. And I find that quite amazing. Now here we see, he's talking about just eight spiritual aspects or dimensions of the path. And speech is one of them. Yet how often do we really pay attention to the quality of our speech? It's a consuming activity for most of us. We spend a lot of our lives talking. To begin to pay attention and to see, okay, what are the mind states out of which our speech is coming? And the practice of metta provides a really beautiful and useful reference point by which to measure the quality of our mind in speech. Is it really coming out of a loving space? Is it coming out of you know, an irritated, annoyed? The Buddha mentioned four kinds of speech which were unskillful, unwholesome. You know, lying, of course, saying that which isn't true. And even that, you know, we think, yeah, I don't lie. We do lie. (laughs) You know, sometimes in big ways, sometimes just in very small ways where we exaggerate something or maybe we tell something that's not true in the name of protecting somebody from something. Uh, I found it (laughs) so striking that it really is difficult to be Totally straight. It is, you know, just. And then I wonder, well, why is it so difficult? It would be so simple just to be completely honest. But somehow our minds have been conditioned in such bizarre ways. And yet we know that when people are really straight and really honest, just simply truthful. It's wonderful to be around these people, and there's, there's a certain strength and integrity that they have, because we know we can trust them. It doesn't mean, this commitment to truthfulness, doesn't mean that we go around necessarily telling everybody what we think of them, simply because it's true that we think that of them. <laughs> you know, there's a very useful guideline for right speech, where the Buddha said, Speak that which is true and that which is useful. Like something could be true and in the moment, not useful at all. So we have to be sensitive. We have to really be, you know, clear about what's going on in a situation. Is it true and is it useful? Just as as a simple example of, you know, this tendency of the mind to shade things a bit. It was quite funny. It was after one of our three month courses. You know, and all the yogis are getting together and talking. And then in one of the discussion groups, this one guy, you know, he said, you know, I've been noticing that when we're talking, and we're talking, how long did you sit, how long did you sit, that he would always add 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just a lot, you know, how our minds do that. And to take speech... And it really as a major part of our practice. It's going on all the time and so it's if we do take it as part of our practice it really brings sort of spirituality alive for us. And we're really looking, are we being honest? Are we being truthful? Is it coming from metta? Is it not? No, it keeps us awake. So the Buddha talked about not saying that which isn't true. He said not using harsh language. Angry language. Not using speech that's basically gossip, that's backbiting, that causes division between people. And again, it's, it's so interesting that there should be such delight in doing that. You know, and it's, how much of our talk is just talking to somebody about somebody else? You know, and sometimes, probably rarely, it's in praise. <laughs> I mean, when's the last time you spoke to somebody about somebody else? Boy, they're really a great person. <laughs> More often than not, it's probably because of some difficulty we're having or something we don't like, or some kind of gossip. It's helpful just to recognize that, not, not in a self-judgmental way, you know, but just to see it, to recognize this is a pattern, this is a conditioned habit of our speech energy. Can we practice little renunciation here? Can we say, that's not helpful, you know, and let go of it. So not saying that which is not true, not using harsh energy, harsh language, that's really not coming from a place of metta, not causing divisiveness between people, or gossip, or backbiting. And the last kind of speech the Buddha referred to as being not so helpful, is one that I found also really interesting, he said, to refrain from useless talk. When I pay attention to just my ordinary speech in the world, it's quite amazing to me how much is useless. <laughs> you know, I'll be sitting around with a group of friends and I can see this impulse to say something That is completely without benefit to anybody. (laughs) Either myself or anybody else. And when I'm mindful, when I'm aware, it's like I see that come up in the mind and I can can let that go. And the mind just very naturally comes back to a peaceful place of silence. And when the mindfulness is not there, you know, (laughs) So all of this is practice. You know, and this is a big area of practice because, as I say, speech is a very big part of our lives. Don't underestimate the power of it and the power of transformation of our own hearts and minds as we refine our sila, refine our morality in speech. It's one of the most effective transformative tools. First we get great deal more inner silence, and we actually find ourselves reciting much more in a place of metta, when we're not giving voice to all those things which are not metta, not coming from a place of love. Okay, so one aspect of refining sila is looking at the effects of our actions on our own minds. You know, what states of mind are being cultivated? You can do it around eating. You can do it around you know, how we choose to spend our time in the day. What is being cultivated? A second perspective with which to practice strength and strengthen Sila is to look at the effect of our actions on other people. Because they don't, they don't only have an effect on our own minds. Our actions are energetic expressions and they do affect the people around us. This requires a tremendous sensitivity. You know, because So often we're caught up in our own little world, our internal world, that we may not be paying so much attention. Of the effects on other people. And there's some very basic precepts which we can look at and work with. You know, the precepts of not killing. And most of us don't go around with you know, automatic assault weapons. It's hard to imagine why somebody would want to have one of those. But that's that's an aside issue. <laughs> you know, so that level we're not going around harming people, I hope. But we do come up against the question of taking life or not, you know, at different times. Usually with beings that are quite a bit smaller than we are, you know, with bugs, with insects, with this or that. Is our first response when something's around that we don't want, that we don't like, to swat it? Or do we consider this preceptive, there's, there's a life there, that's a being. Is there another way? You know, and maybe it involves some inconvenience to us. But do we have enough respect for life, for sila, for non-harming, that we are willing to be inconvenienced? to take an insect out of the house and just put it out instead of swatting it? Sometimes, this is a very difficult question. You know, it's not that it's a simple matter. You know, if termites are eating up your house, what do you do? Well, maybe if you're ryokan, <laughs> say, you know, have a good meal. <laughs> uh, but most of us probably are not yet in that state, and we'd want to do something about the termites. So it's not to think that it's always easy. You know, sometimes we're really up against sort of a difficult situation. What I'm suggesting is that we do things from as much consciousness and as much compassion and as much love as possible, that we're just not reinforcing patterns you know, of harming or killing out of habit, mechanically, and then we really look at every situation. Is there some way to avoid harm, to avoid killing in this situation? All of this is designed to wake us up you know, so that we don't continue to live in the dream-like world of our conditioning. With respect to the effects of our actions on other people, there's another precept which is tremendously important and that is the precept around sexual misconduct. On retreat it's easy, because in the retreat environment we take the precept to refrain from any sexual activity, so it's really not much of a problem. But out in the world, the precept is not that. It means refraining from sexual misconduct. Which means that we don't involve, we don't get involved in sexual activity that causes harm, it causes harm to ourselves, harm to others. Now this is a very tricky area because it takes a great deal of honesty you know, to see really what's going on, as we all know. You know sexual desire is a tremendously powerful force in our lives and in the world, at times. You know, and when people are filled with passionate desire, it is so tremendously seductive because it really feels at that time that this is the feeling that's giving meaning to my life. You know, because it's so energizing and so pleasurable and so, so much energy. Sometimes it's fine and wonderful, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're caught up in this kind of passionate desire in situations where it really is causing harm to other people. We need to look at that. We need to be really honest and really see. And look to see where is our commitment here. Is our commitment to the gratification of our desires? Or is our commitment to sila? Is our commitment to living in a non-harming way in this world? Now, one aspect of this training, this first training of a spiritual life, this training in Sila, is the growing recognition that it's about the totality of our lives. It's not about one, one little part of it. It's about how we live. How we live with ourselves, how we live in relationship to other people. So when we look at our actions, You know, it's sometimes we can see ourselves, perhaps with an inclination to do an unskillful or harmful action. Maybe sometimes quite intentionally, you know, but maybe we're motivated by ill will or anger and oh, yeah, I'm going to get them. Okay, we want to see that. Sometimes we do harmful actions out of a rationalization and this is what happens so often when we're filled with desire. We're so filled with it and so consumed by it that we rationalize. Oh, well, that's not really harming anybody. Or it's okay because of whatever. I'm following my bliss. So sometimes it comes out of rationalization. Sometimes we do harmful actions, not intentionally and not out of irrationalization, but simply because we're not really paying attention to the effects of what we do. I'll just share with you one story, uh, which was very moving to me. Um, I mentioned this woman, teacher Deepama, who's sort of a wonderful teacher for us. Some years ago, she came to visit here several times. Uh, on one of her visits, uh, I'm sure you've all noticed that the little white house across the street, which is now staff, some part of staff housing. But at that time we were renting that out to some yogis, but who were who had rented it just as a, as a living space. And we had arranged with uh, this couple uh, that when Deepa Ma came they would be able to use the house and the couple made other arrangements and they were really generous with it. Well, after Ma arrived and she was uh, just staying someplace else for a little while, we thought it would be great, a few of us who were teaching, if Deepa Mark came like a week earlier and we could do a retreat with her you know, before the course started. And so again, we, we asked this couple if they would mind moving out you know, a week earlier so Deepa Mark could come and we could sit. Uh, and again, even though that was you know, a further disruption, they, they agreed. So we were all caught up in the excitement of the visit and Deepak we coming and ourselves sitting. You know, and a couple of weeks later, after we were into the course, uh, the woman came up to see me in an interview. Uh, she was kind of acting out in the sort of a psychodrama kind of way what the experience had been like from her side, and she. She was saying sort of in, in action and in, in her words, you know, in all that time uh, that Deepa Ma was here, she was talking to me, you never once invited us to come have tea with her. You know, I, felt, I felt so terrible. You know, and it's like it wasn't an intentional slight or ill will. It's just, I was so caught up in the event, you know, and what was happening and you know, my own part in it. It was just by not paying attention you know, to what was going on around, that harm was caused. So it's a tremendous lesson for me. Uh, and it really has to do with whether we're living from a space of inclusion or a space of separation. And I think it's very helpful in whatever surrounding we're in, any environment we're in, are we living in that space of inclusion, of really paying attention to everyone that's in that space, or are we living from this self-involved space, which is very separating. That's another area, another arena in which to look at the effects of our actions on other people. The third way of looking at sila, the first is the effect of our actions in our own mind, second is how our actions affect other people. The third way of practicing sila, strengthening it, refining it, is looking at the long-term consequences of actions and this really has to do with the law of karma. That each of our actions has a result. Not always in the, in the present moment. It's like planting a seed in the ground. We plant a seed, what kind of fruit is going to come? Now, So often in our lives, we use the pleasure principle as the measure for our actions. How does it feel? If it feels good in the moment, it must be good. There's a lot that feels good in the moment that does not have good long-term consequences. And there's a lot that might not feel good in the moment and actually is very beneficial. And I'm sure you've had moments this week (laughs) which didn't feel so good. And yet as part of the whole training, as part of the development, actually serves us very well. You know, this principle is so obvious when we look at the environment. Just, just as one, one issue. Of course, we can see it in many areas. People acting for gain in the moment, for satisfaction in the moment, with disastrous consequences in the long run. So we need to look. We need to really have a larger perspective. We have to step out of sort of our narrow little concerns of the moment and look at our actions in the big picture. Where is this going? Where is it leading? Is it going someplace I want to go? Or am I going to end up in a place that I actually don't want to be? You know, for myself or the people around, or the earth? Having a long-term vision or a bigger perspective is essential for the completion of this practice of sila, of morality. As a American who is a monk in the Thai tradition, who now lives in England, is sort of the main western disciple of Ajahn Chah, one of the great Thai forest masters. His name is Ajahn Sumedho. Sumedho had a wonderful teaching about all this. He said that our practice is not to follow our hearts, it's to train our hearts. And there's a big difference because there's a kind of new age belief that if we just follow our hearts, everything will be fine. Well, you've just sat for a week watching your heart. (laughs) Is everything in your heart totally wonderful and beautiful and noble? (laughs) Doubtful. Uh, There is a lot that is, but there's a lot that's not. So it's not simply a question of following our hearts, every impulse that we have. It's to train our hearts. So that we really are coming and acting from a place of metta Loving kindness from compassion. The Buddha talked about Sila so much. I mean this is this is an essential part of our spiritual life. This refinement of non harming, of morality, of moral integrity. It's the source of great beauty and happiness in our lives. It's the happiness of non-remorse. You know, one of the things that happens in meditation practice over time is, as we make the space for it, many, many memories and recollections of all the things we've done start to come up in the mind and we feel great delight about the good things and we can feel tremendous remorse about the things we've done out of ignorance you know, that caused harm. And when I was in the Peace Corps in the training, part of the training was uh, killing a chicken, which at the time I was very proud of being able to do, you know, macho uh, mentality. But then years later I was sitting in India doing intensive practice and it all came back to me. It was horrible. I mean, it really was. I, As I was reliving, it was murder. I mean, that's what it was. I just murdered this being, and there was such incredible remorse about that Uh, because I was reliving it so vividly. And and part of that process was also the purification. Living through it again consciously allowed it to come up and finally, uh, you know, to to cleanse. But it showed me so powerfully and directly that it's all in there. Sila, this commitment to non-harming, from the time that we take it, and we've all done lots of things in the past, but from the time that we're committed to sila, to non-harming, to morality, taking care with our actions, it gives us this great, great gift of non-remorse, which is the condition for happiness in our minds and in our lives. It is also a very great gift to other people because it is the gift of fearlessness. Because we're saying with our actions, we're making a statement with our lives, you don't need to fear me because I won't do anything that's harmful. The world could use a dose of that And we can do that. We can be making that gift to everybody that comes into contact with us in our lives by our own commitment to sila. It's giving the gift of fearlessness. The Buddha spoke of sila as being the true beauty of a person. And Sharon spoke about this the other night. We're so concerned without a beauty which is really is nothing. Unless there's the real inner beauty of sila, of non-harming. So this is the first field of training. Take it as a practice. In every area of our actions we can become more and more refined in our appreciation of non-harming, of coming from a place of love, of inclusion. This is as much a practice as sitting cross-legged, you know, meditating in a more formal way. Okay, The second field of training, the Buddha called Samadhi. So the first is Sila or morality second is samadhi, and that means the cultivation of the meditative states of mind, of concentration, of mindfulness, of right effort, of metta, of compassion. And we need to do this. We need to actually cultivate these states. One way, of course, is coming on retreat periodically and doing it intensively, as you've done for the past week. But how can we keep it going in our lives? That's a great challenge. You know, often at the end of a retreat people are filled with enthusiasm for practice and yeah, I'm going to do it, I'm going to sit four hours every day. (laughs) As most of you know who have done retreats before, it's difficult to keep a daily practice going. There are so many demands on us in the world. The only way it happens is if it's given a priority. We have to arrange the day around the sitting. And each of us finds the appropriate time. It may be first thing in the morning, it may be before you go to sleep at night, it may be some free hour you have in the day. But you really need to be committed to arranging the day around the sitting time. Otherwise, it gets squeezed out, and it happens very easily. Give it a high priority, and it doesn't even matter so much how long you sit for. What's much more important is the regularity of doing it every day. You know, if you can sit for an hour, great, you can sit for two hours, terrific. But maybe it'll only be 40 minutes, or half an hour. practice every day over time that really starts to uh, transform our inner life and the way we're living in the world, the way we're relating in the world Okay. what I'm going to say now you know how in (laughs) the you know in uh, trials where the judge instructs the jury, ignore the last statement. <laughs> right. OK, what I'm going to say now should be ignored by all of you, except those really hardcore cases that have tried many, many times and just can't get a daily sitting practice going. Yeah. So everybody who can, just ignore this. <laughs> but for those of you who can't, who really want to sit every day, but it just after a week or two or three, it just kind of peters out. Somebody came up with the magic solution to this problem. <laughs> no, really. And it was somebody from New York, you know, who just had that kind of wild New York energy of busy and hectic and active. And, and he said, you know, I just, I can't manage to do it. I want to sit every day, but it doesn't happen. So he said he finally came up with a solution, which worked great. He said he made the vow that before he went to sleep at night, he was going to at least get into the posture. That's all. That was his vow. That was his commitment. It wasn't to sit even for five minutes. It was just he was going to get into meditative posture. I mean, anybody can do that. You know, no matter how busy or how, how before you go to sleep, just get into the posture. Well, what he found was that really the hardest thing is not the sitting. It's getting into the posture. (laughs) And it's true, because he found that almost always, once he was sitting, then he sat for however long he could, you know, sometimes it was shorter, sometimes longer. So it's interesting to see kind of the power of the difficulty of just disengaging ourselves enough from the world simply to, to get into a meditative sitting posture. So I recommend that vow to you, you know, because it really will break the cycle you know, of letting the sitting fall away. sitting every day. Using your body as a vehicle for awareness and a vehicle for metta. You know, we are moving around a lot during the day. Just from one room to another, out walking around at work, whatever. Can you pay attention to the body? Can you practice metta in very ordinary circumstances? You know, you're walking down the street someplace. It's interesting just to walk down the street and notice the difference when you're just walking in yourself, in your own world, lost in thoughts, or when you're walking down the street. everyone on the street be happy? everyone be healthy? I mean, it's amazing. That feeling of inclusion immediately surfaces. Instead of feeling separate, instead of feeling apart from everybody else, all of a sudden just by that simple remembrance, of the practice of metta, it's like we've all become part of one environment. Here you've practiced metta intensively for this week, all day, every day, using the phrases. Let that come into the world with you, into your life, just at at odd moments, for the people around you at that time loving thought, loving feeling, it changes how we feel, it changes our relationship in that moment. One aspect of this sense of metta or inclusion rather than separation has to do with the basic attitude of opening to experience rather than defending ourselves from experience. Today would be a perfect day to practice this. It's windy, it's cold, it's intense. You go outside, how are you in that experience? You know, very often we're trying to protect ourselves from feeling cold. And then there's kind of that contraction of our body and our energy. What would it be like, instead of doing that, to opening to being cold? Okay, let me feel this. Let me really be cold. Let me feel the wind. Let me feel the intensity. It's a completely different relationship. You're no more cold I mean, it's happening anyway, it's just a question of how we're relating to it. Are we open, opening ourselves to it and sort of letting it in and feeling it, or are we closing ourselves to it? That's really the expression of metta. You know, it's opening to experience whatever it is, letting it be there, letting ourselves feel it. It's great, it's energizing, (laughs) it's intense sometimes. It really is the foundation for our engaging in and enjoying life. When we're coming from this place of metta, not only towards people, but to the elements, towards experience, with openness, acceptance, that sense, yeah, let me be with this. Okay, so this is the area of samadhi. It's the cultivation of right effort, of concentration, of mindfulness, of metta, in a more formal way. Where we're really committed to the practice of these qualities. The heart of which is a daily practice. From that, other things will follow. So there's the field of training, which is sila, morality field of training or practice which is samadhi, the last field of training the Buddha talked about is that of wisdom, of really nurturing, cultivating, developing the wisdom in our minds and in our lives. It comes both from our sitting practice but also and perhaps even more so from wise attention in our lives. Are we paying attention to all the events? of our day. And one area that has revealed more to me I think than any other aspect, perhaps outside of the formal setting, is paying attention in times of difficulty. You now we all face different difficulties in our lives, whether it's with other people in our relationships or work or whatever. Problems arise. How are we with those difficulties? Are we really bringing an investigative mind to them, you know, where we're trying to understand how am I getting caught? Where is the suffering in this? Where is the attachment? Where is the fear? Or, as perhaps is more more likely, do we get caught in a blaming mode, blaming other people for our problems or the situation, or it's their fault? That never helps us understand our own contraction. It may be that, you know, other people are doing unskillful things and communication is needed. That's fine. But have we freed ourselves? Freed the contraction, the attachment in ourselves first? There's so many examples of this. i <laughs> just running through the Rolodex of stories. <laughs> there are so many. Rather than go into a lot of stories, it's just. <laughs> You know, when there's fear, when there's anger, when there's grief, when there's some kind of afflictive emotion, where we're really caught, where we're really contracted, that's the time to look, that's the time to investigate. What's our relationship to that? Are we open? Are we accepting? Are we holding that very emotion in a space of metta? Or are we reacting? Are we, do we have aversion toward that emotion? Are we pulling back from it? How are we getting caught? How are we getting identified with it? That whole arena of investigation is the growth of wisdom. Another aspect of the development of wisdom which is tremendously powerful and that is the perception and the recollection and the continuous investigation of the truth of impermanence you know we all think or often we think yeah i know things are impermanent i know things are changing but we know it mostly conceptually intellectually we're not often living from that space because if we were there would be no attachment to anything if we really knew that things were changing why in the world would we be holding on? So we know it up here, but we haven't quite fully integrated that. If we really understood that this body is changing, moment to moment, over years, that it goes, gets older and sick and dies, there'd be no fear. Fear because we're attached, because we're holding on. We want it to stay a particular way. And this is natural for most of us. You know, in, our, in our level of understanding, we want to deepen that level by really paying attention to how things are always changing. I mean, you'll see it very noticeably in leaving the retreat, and I feel it every time. Either I'm sitting or teaching, of course, you know, the retreat ends and and go home or leave the retreat site. What happened to it? (laughs) It's like this bubble of experience and it's gone. It has its effects because everything we do has its effects, but it's really disappeared. And this is true of everything in our lives. Where's breakfast now? Yeah. But it's so crazy because we spend our lives so looking forward to the next event. You know, as if the next event, oh yeah, this is going to (laughs) really, it's really funny. I mean, when you stop to look at how we're so in the grip of changing experience. And so the reflection it's not that we it's not that we pull back from experience. You know, we can still be fully involved and engaged. But is it with the wisdom, you know, of openness, of seeing the emptiness, the essential emptiness of yes, yeah, this event is going to happen and then it's gonna be gone like every other event in our lives. It really creates a great sense of repose because we're not toppling forward, we're not leaning forward always to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. We're just kind of settled back actually with whatever is arising, without that attachment, without that grasping. And it all comes from the deepening insight into the impermanence of things. So it's worth reflecting on and looking at in our lives. This reflection of impermanence provides a wonderful reference point for the examination of what we do in our lives. Because it really calls up the question, what is truly of value? Given the fact that it's all just disappearing, the question is, what is of lasting value in our lives? And I think that's a very fruitful question to hold in the mind. Sometimes I imagine myself on my deathbed, you know, with the question, what would I have wanted to accomplish in my life? What's the most important thing for me? Because from the perspective of death, it really illuminates that question. You know, what is really important? We have this precious gift of life. What are we doing with it? But the trick is to ask the question now, not then. Because then it's too late. You know, time is speeding by, and it's so easy to get caught up in just the busyness of our lives and not ask this question. So this reflection, this consideration really allows for the growth of wisdom, of wise choice, of really doing the things that we must value. This understanding of impermanence on deeper and deeper levels aligns us with the wisdom of letting go, rather than holding on or grasping. This is something from Ajahn Chah. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles in the world will have come to an end. Well, this is something for us to look at. How much of our struggle in the world has to do with holding on to something? And what's so beautiful is that out of the wisdom of letting go, of non-grasping, not holding on, the heart of love and compassion opens quite naturally. When we're not holding on, Metta becomes the natural expression of that place of freedom. I'll close just with one more uh, teaching from Ajahn Chah. He was a great. He was really a great uh, teacher, sort of in the forest tradition of Thailand. Very simple, very straightforward, just to the point. So this is at the end of a talk he gave. He said, in ending, I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in your practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With proper effort and in time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, and with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. (laughs) From now on, it's up to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just we could take five or ten minutes if you have any comments or questions. Great. I think the, the key uh, distinction here that you want to be careful about is the difference between remorse and guilt. Because those are very close, but they're really quite different. Often when we become aware of past unskillful actions, you know, where we see that we've done things that may have caused harm, the seeing of that is tremendous. We need to see it if we really want to open and grow. Guilt is that feeling of self-condemnation about that. One time in working with guilt, I, I was having this very strong feeling of it, and I got very interested to understand, well, what is this? And I saw that it was a trick of Mara, a trick of the ego, because the feeling of guilt is just reinforcing the sense of self in a negative self-judgment. I'm so bad because I did this. Remorse is something quite different. Remorse is the opening, the understanding, yeah, I did this thing, it was not skillful. And we recognize it. We see it. And there's that sense of, out of the seeing of it, we don't need to do that one again. Because we see it. And so there's a real forgiveness. We're not holding on to any sense of self or self-judgment in it. So it's really quite beautiful. It's just, it opens us up to the truth of what happened as far as we can see it, and it washes through. We come from a place of metta, of forgiveness. So be careful because that line is sometimes not seen so clearly from remorse to guilt and we could get caught but the, that's wonderful. Well, there, in dealing with anger and metta, there are two two ways of working. The way of working in terms of the meta is, you know, in some of the groups I talked about uh, the remote control of the TV and how we're really finding the metta channel. And sometimes if we're caught in anger and you're able to, to just switch channels. you know, And to start doing metta, maybe starting with yourself or a friend, but then going to the person you're angry at. And just through that change of channel, see if you can start relating in a different way. It doesn't mean that you no longer see the situation. You still see it and you may need to take action about it, but you're no longer doing it from an angry place. You're doing it more from a place of acceptance and even loving kindness toward that person. Sometimes we just can't do that. You know, the anger is too strong and our clicker is stuck. <laughs> And then you really want to uh, practice more in Vipassana or mindfulness mode where you become aware of the anger itself, uh, using the tools of mental noting or you know, feeling it in the body so that you're open to the anger with the perspective of metta towards the anger. So you're not judging it, judging yourself for having it. You know, the, the key element in this is acceptance. Can you really be accepting of that feeling and let it wash through? So from both sides, one side is changing the channel, one side is opening with acceptance. I think there's no special advice because just as that experience just arose from doing the practice, I mean, you, didn't, you didn't do anything to make that happen, it was just opened up into that space. The same thing happens in our life and it really comes simply from paying attention. One, one thing that I would particularly pay attention to you know, in the course of living one's life, and this is part of the wisdom training, is pay attention to the times of selfing. You know, we're going through the day, everything's fine, we feel quite open, spacious, flowing, fluid, and then something happens. And we can feel it. I mean, we feel it in the body, feel it in the way we're relating. There's a glitch. That's a big mindfulness bell. Like really pay attention to the glitch. What's going on? How is the self being created in that moment? Am I attached to an opinion? Am I attached to a viewpoint? To a, What am I holding on to? Just, there was one thing before I forget. One little piece that I meant to mention. Uh, in terms of your sitting practice and combining the metta if you have not that done the Vipassana practice, of course, just to continue with the metta itself as a practice. If you have done Vipassana before, you can really combine them in various ways. You can do metta as part of each sitting. In the of Vipassana, you could do metta for the whole sitting. And then in your second sitting of the day, you could do Vipassana. <laughs> and then in the third sitting of your day, you could do metta again. <laughs> so there's just a lot of flexibility. That's what I'm suggesting. They both support one another uh, beautifully. Mm Uh, generally we don't encourage yogi to yogi notes but I think a simple note saying you were my neutral person I love you <laughs> would be fine I think it's great and as I mentioned in the talk, for me it was also the neutral person really opened up a whole world of understanding about the power of metta. think in a couple of ways. One is, I think we could let go of the expectation that everything will be understood right away. You know, because the, the, the practice and the implications really are vast and tremendously profound on many levels. And so let those pieces that don't fit in a way that's good because it can really if if you're not attached to either viewpoint either that it's right or that it's wrong but just let the, that be a little grist in the mind to keep us awake and to further investigate well i don't understand how this fits now. now what's the relationship of not killing to abortion rights that's not an easy issue you know and i think we don't have to have conclusions right away. And over time, it may be that either the understanding will clarify itself, or you'll see, yeah, this is this is a piece that doesn't make sense for me. The important thing, I think, is not being attached to one viewpoint, because that precludes any furthering of understanding. So we can have a viewpoint. It's not 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 having one. It's not being attached to it. So we just stay open and let it percolate around. Because that's one uh, suggestion. The other is that so many of the ethical issues from the Buddhist perspective come down to motivation.